This morning's text is from Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, may I have a seat. Some of you are really nervous that we're going to go through the book of Mark extremely slowly. <laughs> I promise you this is the only sermon that is based on one verse, at least that's how I've planned it so far. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful to be gathered unto your name again this morning. Uh, Our hearts long for this day each week to be with your people and to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. We've been able to sing those truths. We've We've been able to hear them. We've been able to pray, receive the mercy and grace of Christ afresh in our hearts and minds. And I pray, Spirit, that you would continue to do that work in us this morning. I pray for uh, some of our families who have had quite the weekend with cleaning up from a storm and all the disruption that that has caused and power outages and trees down. pray that you would uh, comfort our people, comfort our friends and brothers and sisters that are having to deal with such things. Uh, Once again, a reminder of the fall, of what sin has wrought in this world. We pray for uh, the citizens of uh, Morocco who are dealing with a tremendous uh, earthquake that has caused much damage and has killed many, many people. Pray that the comfort of Christ will be, would be with them. We pray for other churches, other brothers and sisters that are gathering this morning. Pray for uh, Fort Worth Bible Church, uh, meeting not too far from here, that you would make yourself manifest uh, from the preaching of your word and of the gathering of those saints And we pray for Redemption Hill Church in South Fort Worth, that the gospel would go forward in that part of our city and be a light uh, for your kingdom. And we pray that you would be with us this morning as we begin the book of Mark. Help us to understand it, Spirit. We we, uh, truly desire that. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you, and we are beginning a new series this morning in the gospel of Mark. And so... uh, If you want to grab your Bibles, turn to Mark. If you were able to pick up a a sermon handout, announcement sheet on the way in, it might be uh, good to have that this morning as well to take some notes as we continue on in our study. Uh, Back in the day when I was working in news, in the newsroom, one of the biggest days of any given year, but especially every four years, was Election Day. Uh, And you can imagine why. It was all hands on deck Uh, especially presidential election years because there's many uh, local races to cover. But but also, uh, locally, you would see folks gather who maybe were part of presidential campaigns and they would have watch parties. Maybe some of you have even been a part of a watch party where you gather in in a room. Usually it was like a hotel ballroom and you would watch the news and the anticipation would be, especially in a presidential election, that you were watching for which candidate was going to get 270 votes. Now, if you know recent U.S. history, you know that that has been fraught with all sorts of weird things that we're not going to get into this morning, but presumably on November 5th, 2024, next year, uh, we're going to see this same thing happen again. We're going to see people gather on both sides, Republicans or Democrats, and they're going to be watching and, and waiting to see which candidate gets 270 electoral votes. And whichever candidate does, what you're going to see in that room is an explosion of joy, 
an explosion of jubilee and of excitement and of uh, hugs and high fives and even tears of joy. And the reason that we're going to see that from that room is that for those people, whatever that news brings to them, it is good news. The news is what they've been waiting for. In many ways, it's what they've been uh, hoping for, maybe even working for themselves for months, if not years. And now it has finally come true. When we open the Gospel of Mark, uh, what we are seeing is the first words that we heard just a minute ago in verse 1. That was the first after 400 years of waiting for Israel to hear something about good news. The people of God have been waiting for 400 years at the end of the New Testament, at the open of the New Testament. Indeed, they were looking for something like good news. And so this morning, we get to consider what this good news is. And so we are going to be spending many months uh, spending a lot of time with Jesus. Uh, in, in the Gospels, we get to see Jesus unvarnished in the raw as he appeared, healing, speaking, casting out demons, forgiving sins. Now, most uh, scholars actually think that the Gospel of Mark is the first gospel that was written, even though it comes in our Bibles after the Gospel of Matthew. So this truly is kind of the first story about Jesus that is written. And so we see Jesus very explicitly here throughout the whole gospel. And we will, over the next several months, begin to focus more and more on Jesus and how he has entered into our existence in fact, uh, as we saw here, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is very straightforward, very simple. And we see that uh, Mark is talking about the Gospel. He says it very explicitly. In fact, uh, this word Gospel is used in Mark more than Matthew, Luke, or John. Mark is wanting us to see very clearly, very explicitly, without uh, a lot of uh, uh, flowery language or long explanations. He just wants us to see the gospel. This is the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning uh, with us is maybe something a little bit different than we normally do. Normally, I have the main idea that I would just uh, let you guys know here right off the bat. But what we are going to do together this morning is that we are going to build the main idea of this message, of this verse. We're going to build it together. And so you see on your handout that all it says under the main idea right now is Mark is. And so we're going to fill out this sentence together as we go throughout the morning. So let's begin. Mark is the story. If you want to write that down, Mark is the story. We'll stop there. That's not the complete sentence, but that's the beginning of the sentence. Mark is the story. The story is written by this man, Mark, and he is a rather good storyteller. If you've read the Gospel of Mark, it moves along really quickly. There's not a lot of lingering over any given story or situation. Mark is a very fascinating storyteller, but it is a story. This is a true story. This is a historical account of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know a little bit about Mark, and if you've been in church for a while, uh, Mark is a very famous uh, historical figure in the church. Now, Mark was not one of the disciples, but he was there at the time. He was close to what was going on. Mark was actually able to see a lot of the things that he is going to describe in the book of Mark. 
Uh, we know him as John Mark, is his full name. And if you go on to read in Acts, uh, you see the account that uh, he was friends with Paul. He was doing ministry with Paul, but at some point they had a falling out. And in the middle of Acts, you see that uh, Barnabas and Paul actually split because of John Mark. But what we see also at the end of Paul's life is that Mark has become quite useful in ministry to him. So there's something that has happened in John Mark over a period of time, probably a period of about 10 years from when he and, uh, and Paul had this disagreement or some type of falling out that caused Paul and Barnabas to part ways. And then at the end of Paul's life, he longs to see Mark. He wants to know that Mark is valuable to him. Now, Mark is writing this account, uh, but he's actually writing this account, interestingly enough, from the viewpoint of the apostle Peter. Uh, so Mark was friends with Paul, he's friends with Peter, uh, and, and what he did was basically sit down with Peter, probably over a period of years, to hear from Peter the account of being a, an apostle and disciple of Jesus Christ in the inner circle. And so uh, what you are reading in the Gospel of Mark is Mark writing about the personal accounts of Peter. Peter being able to observe what Jesus said and did while on earth. A couple of other things about the Gospel of Mark as we introduce uh, this series to us this morning. Uh, as I mentioned, it's pretty fast-paced. It's a short gospel. If you look at the rest of them, they're much longer than the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it was most likely written uh, in Rome and for Roman Christians sometime in the 50s to early 60s A.D., uh, and that's important because uh, that is, for all intents and purposes, the audience, the original audience that got the Gospel of Mark was written for. Uh, and he, in doing that, was actually uh, writing with very accessible uh, Greek language. This is almost, you can almost think of this Gospel as like the working man's Greek language. It was meant to be spoken. It wasn't necessarily meant to be uh, read uh, in written form, but it was, it was an oral presentation of the account of Jesus Christ. So again, let's, let's look at this sentence that we are building together this morning. Mark is the story. Uh, every story has a beginning. Uh, anyone who's written any type of story knows that that is true. And, and so here we explicitly read these words in verse 1, the beginning and this is very intentional language that Mark is using in his writing. The beginning, meaning to point to Genesis 1.1. It's, it's not a mistake or it's not just a coincidence that Mark is using this word beginning. He wants to uh, recall for us that everything that is about to happen is rooting itself in the very beginning of creation. In Genesis 1.1, when God created the heavens and the earth. And as it was then, here it is now, a new creation. Mark is wanting us to announce or, or show us that he is announcing something new. This is something new that is going on, but it's rooted in all of redemptive history. But this is a new creation rooted in and because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that is now on the stage. Jesus is the new and better and last Adam. 
We're meant to think back to Genesis 1 and, and what did God create and what story was he beginning to tell then. And now it's not Adam, but Jesus that shows up on the scene. And Jesus will indeed be the one to crush the head of the serpent. Let's continue in this sentence that we are, are building out together. So Mark is the story of the victorious news. Mark is the story of the victorious news. Let's stop again right there. Gospel, as many of you know, means good news. Uh, and so Mark doesn't bury the lead. Uh, just like any good news writer knows, if, if you have something important to say, you don't wait to the end to say it. Mark is coming right out and saying it. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of good news, of victorious news. And there's a reason that I'm using that particular word, victorious. And the reason is, and remember, Mark is writing to and for uh, Roman Christians at the time. And in that culture at the time, anytime they heard this word gospel, it was meant to point them primarily to uh, military victories. And particular military victories by Caesar. And so whenever Caesar would go out and conquer uh, another army or win another military battle, the, the announcement came across as the gospel, as good news. And so those who were hearing gospel, they were thinking about victory. They were thinking about the emperor achieving victory for the people. And so now as we hear gospel, we are also hearing and receiving victorious news. This isn't news that we have created. This isn't news that we've curated on social media or manipulated it to uh, deceive. This is news that's coming to us. This is victorious news. We hear it, we receive it, and it's victorious news of Jesus Christ. So let's continue to build this sentence. We're going to keep plugging away at this sentence that we are building together. Mark is the story of the victorious news of our king who has conquered our enemy. Mark is a story of the victorious news of our king who has conquered our enemy. This gospel, this good news about Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Messiah meaning the anointed one. This is the anointed king. Christ is Jesus' title. This is the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah, the Christ. And, and, and of course, the people of God, Israel in particular, again, waiting 400 years for another word about who this Messiah is. When will he come to save us? When will he come to deliver his people and in various places, the, the Old Testament speaks about this coming Messiah, about this one who would come to be the king and to be the utmost and just and, and wisdom and do right in the land. This would be a king who would bring peace and free his people from their enemy. And so Mark is saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ, here it is. And we have to ask, I think, two important questions at this point. If this is victorious news of our king who has conquered our enemy, the, the first question we should ask is, who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? 
And the second question, we, second question we should ask is, how will this Messiah liberate us? Who is our enemy, and how will our king conquer this enemy? You see, uh, Israel has, at this point, in many ways, been waiting for a new exodus. The exodus for the people of God was the premier, the hallmark event for redemption. This was what they were waiting for, and all the prophets in the Old Testament were pointing again that one day there would be a new exodus, a new deliverance of God's people. And we're going to look a lot more about this next week when we look at John the Baptist uh, and what he's doing and how he points to that story of a new exodus. This is a new exodus that the people were expecting. And at this time, they were expecting a new exodus freeing them from the reign and rule of the Roman Empire. This is, this is the life that they were living at this time under the rule of the Romans, under the pagan Roman Empire. Just like their ancestors were freed from the Egyptians by God, they were waiting for their great redemption in this exodus. But their perception is that their biggest enemy was out there. That was their perception. That's what they were waiting for at this time, that, that uh, Rome is our biggest problem. And if we just had the Messiah to come free us from Rome, then that will be the answer. That will be the exodus. And then how would this Messiah free them from their enemy? Well, certainly their expectation is not only that their, their greatest enemy is Rome, but that their, their expectation would, would be that this Messiah would come and he would, he would rule with an iron fist. He would come in and conquer the evil nation and wipe them out. Maybe, for example, coming out of Psalm 2, verse 9, it says this of this Messiah that was to come, that you shall break them, meaning the enemy, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what they were expecting. It's what they've been told. It's what they've read and heard during their history. This is what's coming. But who is our biggest enemy truly? Whose dominion do the people of God and, and subsequently us here in this time and age, who is our biggest enemy? Who do we need to be freed from and we can answer that in a variety of ways. And maybe even as I ask that question, you have something that pops into your mind. But let me propose to you that the answer is our sin. That what we need to be, to be freed from the captive, from the dominion of, of is sin. We might be tempted to, to say something else. We might be tempted to think something else. Maybe you think the worst problem is something that is also out there, much like the Israelites did at this time. Maybe you think that the biggest problem that we have are Republicans, or the biggest problem that we have uh, are Democrats, LGBTQ, or Christian nationalists, or maybe even it's more personal than that. Maybe you think the biggest problem in your life is a family member, or someone that you know, but it's our sin. It's our sin that we need the most freedom from. This, this truly is the new exodus of Jesus Christ. Now, do we have external enemies like a Rome or like in Egypt? Of course we do. 
Of course we do. And we, we don't want to minimize those things. We certainly want to continue to pray that God's justice and peace would uh, bring itself to bear on our culture, on our world. We grieve for the things that are going on around us, and we don't stop praying for those things. But this Messiah comes to defeat your greatest enemy, and that is your sin. And how he goes about doing this is what is one of the biggest things that is perplexing in the gospel of Mark. And we can even see with Peter himself how perplexed he is in the gospel of Mark. Later on in Mark 8, a fairly famous passage, and we'll get to it in several weeks. Uh, this is the passage in which Peter is asked, who, who am I? Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And Jesus rightly recognizes that he is the Messiah. But then when Jesus, right after that, tells Peter, that is right, and the Messiah will come and suffer many things and be killed. And Peter, as you probably know, says, no way. There's no way. You are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the king. There's no way that you're going to be suffering and killed you're the one that we've been longing for. You've come to rule. But this Messiah will defeat our enemy, and this Messiah will rule in the most unexpected way. And what we know more clearly than Peter did in that, in that moment is that this kingdom goes through the cross. This is a kingdom by way of the cross. This king is anointed in power by the Spirit and yet also is the suffering servant. This is the one who has come to suffer and die for us. This is exactly what Mark is going to show us all the way through. This king and this kingdom are a paradox. It's not what we expected. It's constantly confronting us in conventional wisdom and ways in which uh, human reasoning and worldly wisdom would, would uh, compel us. The gospel is at every moment going to come in and turn that upside down. This is a kingdom of paradox. Mark 10 verse 45, maybe the watershed verse of the entire gospel of Mark says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the type of kingdom that is being inaugurated here in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Let's continue to build out this sentence that we are working on together. Mark is the story of the victorious news of our King who has conquered our enemy and who shows us the Father's heart. Told you it's a long sentence. Mark is the story of the victorious news of our King who has conquered our enemy and who shows us the Father's heart. The Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Father God. Now, what, is, what does it exactly mean for Mark to convey to the audience, to us, that Jesus is Son of God. What does it exactly mean to be the Son of God? And actually, if you look back through the Old Testament, you will find that there are different ways in which Son of God can be used. First of all, we, we see in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the one who would come, the anointed one, would be a Son of God. He, would, he is called the Son of God. 
as a Davidic king, as a, in, in the line of David. But, but the meaning of that is that he would be like God. That this new king, this Messiah, would be a son of God, meaning that he resembles God. He is like God. Israel is called a son of God. Adam is called the son of God in the Gospel of Luke. But does this son of God in Mark 1 verse 1 mean a human who only represents God really well? Is that what Mark is getting at here? Or does son of God in the way that Mark is using it here in verse 1 mean something all the more magnificent? Well, in Mark, Jesus reveals the Father. And not just as a a Davidic king, Not just as someone who is like God, but Mark is going to show that Jesus is revealing himself as a son of God because he is one with the Father. He is willing and able to cast out demons, to heal, and to forgive sins. And this, of course, gets to the real offense of the gospel that we're going to see Primarily through and from the religious leaders, from the Pharisees. It's okay if this is the Messiah in the sense that he's a man and he's a Davidic king. He's in the line of David. But now he's talking about forgiving sins. And only God can forgive sins. And there's the rub. What does the Son of God mean? It's a stumbling block. We see it as a stumbling block in the Gospel of Mark, and we see it as a stumbling block for so many today. C.S. Lewis puts this very well in in his book, Mere Christianity, which I know a lot of you have, have read. But this is what he writes in Mere Christianity. He says, the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus, is I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The gospel is only the gospel if this Jesus If this Jesus who teaches and proclaims and heals and preaches, the gospel is only the gospel if Jesus is both the suffering servant, the one who has come to die, and the Son of God. It's only the gospel if both of those things are true. If he's the suffering servant and the Son of God. If, if in this king we see the perfect and exact imprint of the nature of God. This is what we read about Jesus later on in the New Testament. He is the exact imprint of the Father, the precise revelation of the Father's heart. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The overarching question 
that we're going to want to ask as we continue through our series in the Gospel of Mark over the next several months is, do we understand this king? Do we understand this king? This theme of understanding is kind of uh, highlighted all throughout this book of Mark, this Gospel of Mark, this idea of understanding. We were discussing in our discipleship group uh, this week as uh, our discipleship groups are going through the book of 1 Peter, uh, but we were uh, making the comment that being misunderstood is one of life's greatest frustrations. And maybe even for you, the, the thought of being misunderstood uh, brings a lot of fear. Uh, the thought of being misunderstood probably brings some frustration because we desperately want to be understood. Kind of a natural desire as a human being. You can you imagine here in the gospel what Jesus is longing for his people to understand him? It's, and how so often we're going to see in the gospel of Mark that they don't. And not only that they don't, but we're surprised in the Gospel of Mark how many people who we think should know who Jesus is and understand the kind of king that he is, the kind of king and kingdom that he is bringing. Uh, what we're seeing so often in the Gospel of Mark is those who we think should know who Jesus is don't. And, and on the opposite end of that, people who we would never imagine could understand who this king is are the very ones who do. In fact, as we continue in 1 Peter in our uh, discipleship groups, remembering that this uh, Gospel of Mark in many ways is Peter's memoirs, we're going to see Peter's journey of understanding. We're going to see it in the Gospel of Mark, but then you consider on the other side of the resurrection and ascension what Peter has great understanding eventually and thankfully over who Jesus is. And when I say understanding, I, I don't mean uh, solely just like an intellectual assent to, I understand about Jesus. I understand what this is saying. When I say, do we understand, I'm, I'm actually wanting us to consider, do we understand from our hearts? Do we understand from our whole being who this Jesus is? Do we have a heart that is able to truly grasp the nature of King Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So friends, do the eyes of your heart see and understand the victorious news of our King who has conquered our enemy and shows us the Father's heart. If by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are able to understand King Jesus, then we will be able to understand how it is that we as his people follow him. If this is a kingdom that runs through the cross, this is not the king and the kingdom that our flesh, that the natural man desires. Because we wouldn't, we wouldn't want nothing to do with this type of king or kingdom. Remember, the, the things of the Spirit that are spiritually discerned, the natural man has no knowledge of. It's ridiculous to him. Our flesh and our natural man 
wants to gravitate toward worldly definition and secular uh, points of strength and power. Like Israel at the time, we wanted a strong political king who would come in and flex and own their op- opponents like a boss. That's what, that's what the world is craving. Like, let's get in and win this thing. Let's, let's show them. Let's take them down. I'm willing to guess that all these watch parties that we'll see in November of 2024, that whoever the winning candidate is and whoever is celebrating this victory of whichever candidate wins is not going to have on their mind, man, I just hope that this comes in weakness. There's no thought of that. There's, there's only thoughts in a moment like that of strength. But we should be celebrating the news a victory from this king who came to conquer our enemy, to come and free us from the dominion of sin. And he did it the only way that he could by dying lonely on a cross. This is the only way that victory comes. The last scene of of Jesus hanging on a tree all by himself. And so the question this morning is, have you received and believed this victorious news in your life? Not only have you received and believed it once, but even thinking about it now, does your heart explode with joy? In your heart, is there more of a picture of what we see on those election nights when people hear victorious news and they erupt in celebration? This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, should do for us. It should do this uh, every day. It should do this every time we pick up God's word and we read the gospel, we see the gospel, we think about Mark 1 verse 1. Does your mind just, is it blown because of what this means? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's broken through. It's broken through into a dark and dying world. It's broken through for you and for me. And it's good news. It's news that we should never grow tired of hearing. And it's outside of us. It's not something that we can do. It's not something that we have created ourselves. So gospel honesty means you come to realize that saving yourself, that liberating yourself, that striving for your own way is exhausting. And it's not working. I don't know if you've had that feeling even this week. And if you look at this lost and dying world around us, this is what every one of us sees out there. People striving and trying to find salvation in and of themselves. But friends, if the kingdom runs through a cross, then we are people of the cross. We are people that embrace the weakness of denying ourselves and picking up our cross to follow Jesus. So what we're going to find in in the gospel of Mark, we're going to see that this is the gospel of your sins are forgiven. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. This is the gospel of let the little children come to me. This is the gospel of I believe, help my unbelief. Today, this is the gospel of though I have sinned again, God has made a way in repentance. This is the gospel of though I am broken and sad, God will hold me fast. This is the gospel of though you have wronged me, I will forgive you. 
This is the gospel of though I was an orphan, now I have a new family with a good father. If you belong to him, this is the gospel of it's all going to be okay. No matter what you've come in this morning with from the week prior, whatever suffering is in your life, whether that's been brought on by your own sin, if you've been sinned against by a friend or a family member, if you are experiencing the sufferings of this world in a real explicit way, if you're still wrestling with your ongoing sin that seems to just not want to let up, if you belong to Jesus Christ, the gospel has broken through and the gospel is a gospel that says it's all going to be okay. No matter what, if you're Christ's, it's going to be okay. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has this kind of resources for a people to experience redemption and forgiveness and healing. There's no other gospel like this. There's no other news like this because there is no one like Jesus, the embodiment of the gospel. There's no news like this. No other means for any type of faux salvation can come close to this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we conclude this morning, how does this gospel make a difference in your life? Really think about that. How does this gospel that is broken through, that we see the announcement here at the beginning of Mark, how does this gospel help you make sense of your world? How does this gospel make sense of your world and the world around us? When sin clings so closely, when the sin of lust has once again gotten the better of you this week, when anxieties over your job keep rearing up, when bitterness over broken friendships remain, when doubt about God's goodness creeps back in, the suffering servant and the Son of God have paved the way. How does this gospel make a difference for evangelism? Because of course, it's changing us and it's for us as the church. But as we've said a few times today, there is a culture around us. There are friends and family who right now are perishing, who are under the weight of their own sin, a slave to the demonic forces that are surrounding us. What does this mean for how we share that good news to such people. The, the people that have strived for years to free themselves, that think that the answer, as Chris mentioned earlier, is within, to follow their hearts and to listen to their own inclinations and desires. That These people that we share Christ with are desperate. Whether they're able to articulate it or not, they're desperate for friends and family and a good Father, the desperate. So we pray that we would take this gospel, this Jesus, this King who shows us the Father's heart, we pray that we would take it to a hardened and broken world. And may we be encouraged as we think about, and maybe someone even comes to your mind as, as one that is so far from God, one who maybe seemed close at one point, but has strayed away over time. Maybe someone who has never had any type of appetite for the things of God, but even that person is not so far gone that God isn't able to rescue them with his good gospel. 
And may we be encouraged as we consider the gospel of Mark, that if we look in chapter 15, which we will in many, many months from now, but at the very end of the gospel of Mark, I don't know if you knew this, but the only human being in the gospel of Mark that truly proclaims with his mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is a Roman centurion at the end of the story. One who has been a sworn enemy of God, a Gentile, one who we would never expect to be the one that utters the true words, truly this man is the Son of God. And he said it as he looked at our Savior hanging from a tree by himself. And at that moment, that Roman centurion was saved as he saw that man, the one who came in weakness, and the one who died is truly the Son of God. And truly he is. Let's pray. Father, we confess with our lips that you are indeed the Messiah, our King, and the Son of God. Fully God, fully man, who has come to save your people. You've conquered our enemy. Our greatest enemy being our sin. Sin which has ruled over us and had dominion over us. But you have freed the captives. You have allowed us to walk in newness of life. And we say thank you. You've shown us the heart of the Father. The one who loves us. The one who, uh, by his very nature, and proclaims himself love. You are love. And by grace, you have come into our existence, into our lives, to save us from sin. And you did it by going to a cross alone. Alone, separated from the Father, put into a grave. That you would do that for us. What a glorious gospel this is. What a gospel, what good news, what news of victory that you have defeated death itself and that you didn't say in the grave, but you have been raised and now at the right hand of the Father praying for us even in this moment. And we know that we will come to see you again when you return for us, our glorious King riding in in victory and we long for that day and our hearts are restless until that day finally comes. Spirit, keep us in these truths. Keep us tethered to Christ. Help us see the glories of the Father. And we love you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.